Hey everybody, it's the Lovecraft Show. I'm Mr. X-Ditch. And I'm Marion. This week has a particularly fine guest, don't you think? Yeah, I enjoyed this one. It was somebody who I'd wanted to interview because I've known her for quite a few years and I've exhibited her work and she is the internationally renowned textile artist Karen Garfin. I hadn't met Karen before and I was absolutely blown away by her story and the meaning behind her work. Her journey is just incredible, what she's achieved. I loved meeting her. It was an incredibly inspirational episode. It was a very good interview. And I would say, as we said, actually, at the start of the interview, people, if you're listening now, just get open an Instagram or a website, Karen Garfen, C-A-R-E-N-G-A-R-F-E-N.com. Go and find her on Instagram, me and Mary in a wait. Go and have a look because you need to see it before you hear her. And when you have had a look at her incredible work and then you hear her talk about it, you will be blown away. It's just like, it's like another dimension, isn't it? It's like a tiny world of amazing wonder. I'd like to thank everybody for all the letters we've received this season of the Lovecraft Show. It was great to get so much feedback on the first two episodes. Obviously, we're recording this segment slightly in the future, but I can't believe you guys sent us so many gifts and so many chocolates and so many fancy patisseries, particularly after the Francis Quinn episode. So thank you. My address, in case you missed it, is Mr. X Ditch Towers, The North. England. I've just got a slight issue with that is that I don't remember receiving any of those. Is it because you gave everybody just your address for the chocolate and the champagne and the patisserie, I think? If anybody does ever want to get in touch with this, you can email us at show at lovecrafts.com. We always love to hear from you if you've got any requests, any jokes, anything you want to say. So now that we've established what you've got coming up, people, it's time to press play and let's rock these interviews and we'll see you on the other side. So I had a situation the other day, I was picking my daughter up from school and one of the dads came up to me and I sort of, when you're at school, you kind of, you have these five minute conversations. So my daughter's just finished her first year of school and by the end of enough five minutes, I've got to know a few of the people, but the relationships take time to build. You both parents, you both understand that it's like at the birthday parties and all those sorts of things when you get to get under the surface of people. So one year in, we've still got quite transitory relationships. Anyway, one of the dads comes up to me the other day and he told me, he just came out and told me how he'd had his third nipple removed that week. And I was a bit taken aback and was like, I'm not sure why you're telling me this, but apparently he just wanted to get it off his chest. Oh. Um, <laughs> everybody, it's a lovely yeah. nice show. We're pleased to have Karen Garfin here. My formal introduction of Karen is that Karen is a internationally acclaimed textile artist whose research methodology is only matched by her virtuosity with a needle and thread. I want the listeners to actually stop listening now. Go and visit karengarfen.com, click on the artworks, have a little scroll through so they can understand what we're about to get into and then come back again. Me and Marion will sit here for five minutes in silence and wait. Yes, go and have a good look and then come back and be amazed. Hello, Karen. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to Love Crafts. Feel honoured. Oh, gosh. Well, we're very honoured to have you. I have to do a little bit of stitching. Obviously, Jamie is a super expert. So I, I, know, 
I know there are going to be questions I need to ask you that are just be so, you'd be thinking, what? But I'm asking you questions on behalf of the beginners of the world. And Jamie, I know, has is bubbling up with a thousand questions, <laughs> insightful and clever questions. There's always a risk with me that I might ask. I'll either ask a dumb thing or I'll go, so let's talk about the socioeconomic discourse of the past 400 years. <laughs> it's true. I'm not sure which I'm going right now. <laughs> And I'm more likely to say, what colour is it? (laughs) As Jamie said at the beginning, we absolutely urge everybody to go and look at your work because it is absolutely extraordinary. And I think the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, just to understand, you know, where did this start for you? Were you, you know, in terms of stitching and things, did you, were you crafty as a child? Did you like making things? Did you particularly like miniature things and tiny things because that's sort of the the base of your work now isn't it there's the the tininess of it yeah always crafty always interested in making things from a small child right from when I was really little and got the coloring book and the pens and I would sit and color and now you'll know why when I admit to this that I'm very very particular and meticulous because even as a young child if I went out of the line was too much for me to bear. Yeah, so you obviously started off really sort of very precise even then. Yes, yeah, so I did that. And then the next thing was the inside of a toilet roll, you know, a little cobbled tube. I used to make dolls out of those. They used to stand in a row in the bedroom, um, you know, with bits of spare material and wool that from my mum's knitting. So, yeah, I started off with that and then I would, did a lot of painting and making jewellery, little brooches out of uh, modelling clay. So, I, yeah, I was always making and doing stuff from a, from a little girl. I think it was a very peaceful, escapist place for me to go. Yeah, I mean, and it is, it does give you that, your sort of that very creative world where if you have enough space and materials as a child, you can. We've, we've talked about this before, Jamie, haven't we, just in terms of like giving children enough space and time and stuff just to leave them to their own devices and get them to make something were you like that with your children yes yeah we used to do a lot of making they're both very creative young women but they're more in the sort of computer technical world but they do very creative things there yeah we used to do lots of things together but the sewing I didn't really they they couldn't get the hang of sewing but then at that age I didn't either because I absolutely hated it I did not like stitching. I did from, you? Yeah, mad. My family all can stitch. They can all knit. They're all really clever with their hands. And my mother used to sit there watching the television and she just did not look down. I never saw her look down at the knitting and then she'd produce this amazing jumper or cardigan or whatever. I, I could never do that. And also she used to have to make a living, bringing in you know clothes brought in for big shops and stores and then she'd make them up so she was always at the sewing machine there was a lot there but I didn't really touch any of that at all except for making my little dolls and um, and could not touch the scissors she said she would cut our fingers off if we touched her scissors (laughs) ouch (laughs) it's a great one isn't it I think we've all had a bit of the threat around the scissors did you have a doll's house as a child Yes, yeah, I did. And I actually spent probably three quarters of my childhood in the doll's house. It was a place where I could 
just be by myself and just move things around and just think about things. And yeah, it was like, I think it was a control thing, really, that I had to be there in this escapist world. But the amazing thing is, what happened is my my auntie came around one day and I'd come home from work. My mother said, is it all right if we give the give the doll's house to Auntie Lily and she wants it for her grandchildren? And I wanted to say, no, no, please, please don't take it. Please don't take it. Because it, I felt like it was a really major part of me. And yeah. um, I, I didn't have any sort of strength to say, please let me keep it. Because I thought they'll think, God, what a baby. You know, she's she's old enough to um, not need a dog's house. So that happened. And then incredibly, over the years, I've been, been thinking, what happened to the doll's house? It's always been on my mind that it got thrown away and I would like it back. So just a few weeks ago, I was walking and I walked past a house. And then I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the doll's house. I was thinking about the my cousin. And would you believe it? This car that went into the drive was my cousin. <gasps> so after, yeah, after all these years, because we haven't been in contact really for a long time. And I could actually ask her about the doll's house. And then she said, oh, she said, the three children absolutely loved it. She said, even my son, they played with it for years and years. And she said, it's now in our loft. And we've been thinking about sending it to our grand, uh, to our, yes, for our grandchildren to play with. And then I sort of, I'm at peace now because I feel like it wasn't thrown away. I'm happy that children are enjoying it and I don't need it anymore. It's taken years. <laughs> Isn't that magical? That's so brilliant. And also now that it's, you know, you're happy for it to go on and do its function, you know, do what it did for you. I, I was saying to Jamie earlier on, before we sort of fast forward into talk about hardcore work, about doll's houses. Isn't it interesting now that we all had this sort of doll's house thing and we actively played with doll's houses when we were little. And now it's almost as though doll's houses have become the province of adults. So, you know, so many grown people have giant dolls houses and they, you know, they it's a it's a real pursuit, isn't it? It's a real passion for people. Oh, yes. Definitely. And it's almost like the the, ch- the children's dolls houses are very sort of utilitarian now. <laughs> They're sort of very just sort of boxes with not very, you know, quite chunky furniture, whereas we all had quite fine stuff. I mean. People don't like to let go of the doll's house, do they, really? No. I mean, I know you didn't want to, but <laughs> even now it's it's become a giant global sort of Absolutely. hobby, yes. isn't it? Yeah, because um, after my first daughter was born, I started a small business uh, making miniature doll's house samplers. So they all that's where all this miniature stitching comes from. And I call it my 15-year apprenticeship to be where I am today. It's a bit of a long apprenticeship, but still. So I started making them. I'd been to a Doll's House Festival and I noticed that they didn't particularly have anything that was hand-stitched, that was of quality. And no one was doing the miniature samplers, you know, little alphabets and houses. So I did some practice things and I contacted the woman whose uh, exhibition I went to, which is an incredible show. She was an incredible woman. And they had the most amazing miniatures from tiny, real silver candlesticks to tiny teddy bears and everything in 112 scale. They do 124th now, 148. And so I contacted her and she said, oh, you can join us in our next show. And it was magnificent. So I made a whole selection of different miniature samplers, framed them, had a stand. And I did that for 15 years. 
So I, I was with her and then I also did other shows in the UK. And uh, not too long after, I met someone who was American and she actually said, I, I'd like to be your agent. So because I had young children, I couldn't really travel long distances. And I used to send her my work. She'd send it all over. She would travel with the work to Japan, Europe, all over yeah. America. It was fantastic for me. And sometimes you know, she'd say, somebody would like this or someone would like that. So I did all that. And I sold them in, in the UK. And then later on, when the children were a bit older, she invited me to go to America. So I went to New York twice and and Chicago twice, I think. Yeah, to do shows. And it was all adults. As you say, it wasn't children, it's for adult collectors. And there's a huge selection of them, of people that love dolls' houses who are not children at all. Takes the entire portfolio of your work in hand luggage on the plane as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> advantage, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, when you're making something that tiny, do you need magnifying glasses do you need you know do you have a magnifying glass do you have something that you look through do you have like super specs yes I use a magnifier which has a lamp so I need very good light at first I only needed good light so sometimes I could stitch in the garden sometimes it was an absolute necessity that I stitched when I was I used to take my work on holiday so I needed good light but now I need a magnifier a light glasses you make it yeah it's it's not as good as it was because this is the thing that i i love about your work is that you you do rather gloss over the technique and maybe because there's more important things to talk about but it's sort of like you know i I listened to an interview with you and you were like so yeah for 15 years i made miniature samplers and then i did a degree in applied arts and you just you just wave the 15 years of making tiny tiny things because obviously like you say that apprenticeship and then when you look at some of the pieces, um, like the, was it The Secret Life of an Eating Disorder, which is yeah. a modern doll's house, you, you've you even gone and done a 148 scale doll's house inside the doll's house. So, I mean, you must, you can't have just been doing samplers, like you must have turned your hand to all of the tiny things. I, I Yes, I like making the miniature things to go in them. I didn't make, I have to admit, I did not make them all. If someone is better at a job than you are, get them to do it because it's it was really more about the concept of the piece but things like the tiny books I made hundreds of miniature books to put on the shelves of of one of the pieces that I've made recently it's called worst case scenario Mm. so that's all in miniature I made tiny little textile things to go in it and the books and other other small pieces and and things to go in frames yeah I mean I'm not an 100% 100% expert all round in miniatures. You know, I really do specialise in the stitching, but I can do other things because it's it's fun. It's fun not to just be stitching. Craft is incredible. You can do anything. I mean, at the moment, I'm cutting things out, really fine things for a new artwork. It's not stitching, but it also gives you that same feeling, that sort of calm that you get from stitching. If I'm a bit stressed, I can sit down and start sewing and um, it goes away because the brain, I feel, I'm sure people have said before, that the brain is incredible, but it goes into this really a relaxed state because you're just concentrating on that one thing. You're not thinking about what to get for dinner or what you've got to do, this, that and the other. You're just there in the moment. 
And to, to emphasize that point and to not do a disservice to my nitty friends and stuff like that, like knitting and crochet, you can do automatically so you can allow your mind to wander. But when you're yeah. stitching, uh, even just normal size cross stitch, let alone the precision that you're using, you're always having to come to the present moment with every single stitch. And that's like your core meditation practices. If your mind wanders, you need to recenter your thoughts. So literally every stitch you make, you're recentering your entire being at that moment. So it's like, ultra ultra mindfulness yes yeah that's very true very true let's fast forward to the moment where you decided that you were going to change direction and become an artist so how did this happen after your stitching apprenticeship for 15 years people were saying oh you're still doing your miniatures you're still doing your miniatures and i felt like it was coming to a natural end really because i used to make there were commissions and all the designs and everything that I really wanted to do with miniature samplers sort of gradually, just gradually finished. It just went away. And um, I thought, oh, I need to do something different because over the years, I've always done lots of different courses when I'm getting a bit itchy, itchy feet. I've got to do something else. So I actually, in this instance, I did a city and guilds in creative embroidery at a local college and um, and I was did that for two years and it was nice it was just like one evening a week and it was a break from family and and of all the rest of it just my own time to be creative and I enjoyed it and there was a tutor there who said oh I really think you should do a degree well no I, I can't I really I'm really not that clever I just don't think I can do this she said no there's a really good course um, that she did a degree in the applied arts so I said Oh well, I'll I'll give it a go. I'll I'll see what happens. I can always stop if I want to. So anyway, so I had an interview and I was accepted for the degree course. I did it part time because I still had family commitments, and it also gave me a lot lot more time to think and read and make. But generally speaking, I didn't do that much in the way of stitching during the degree until the right at the very end. I was sort of specialising in silkscreen printing and things like that, and just experimenting. And it was really weird because the thing that I dreaded most were the essays, the dissertation, and I thought, oh, I just can't, I can't do it. And one day I was sitting, I went into my daughter's bedroom and the little one came in and I said, how would you feel if I gave up the degree? And the little one said, you'll regret it. <laughs> and she was right. She was right. And we use it now. We still use that expression that you'll regret it because I would have regretted it. And I carried on. And in the end, I loved the research. I love learning new things. And it actually took precedence over the making because I loved, I loved it. I loved the degree. I loved looking things up. And in the end, after five years, I came out with a first class degree and, and it changed me totally. You know, even as a mature woman, it, it gave me more confidence and I felt raring to go. And my brain had changed because your brain stretches and changes as you carry on using it and learning. And it was the best thing I ever did. And even the hardest things you do can be the most rewarding. And that piece was War Manual. Yeah, War Manual. Yes, a made up title, made up title. Can you describe it for people who are listening? Yeah, it was a very, very long piece of cloth that I silkscreen printed and then did hand stitching on and it was folded up and it became an, a really long 
tea towel. And it was like a day in the life of a woman. And it starts early in the morning and the, the making of the beds and all the way to cooking and all the rest of it. It was, it was interesting piece. And uh, you had to, you could actually lift it up as if you were folding pages. So it was about a woman and it was always almost like a manual on what a woman would have to do. So I made tea towels to go with it and gloves and things like that. It was an interesting piece. And it was there that I started making these miniature hand-stitched labels. So, you know, labels you'd find on clothes or on the edge of your tea towel or whatever. And they, that was where the humour came in. So I started making, there were little puns in it, like um, she was pressed for time, would have been with the iron and the ironing board. So I, and I really liked that because I always thought, I've got this really funny sense of humour and not everyone thinks it's funny. But when I did my preparatory work for this degree, for the degree show and everything, you had to do these practices. And um, I did one of these labels and it was on the edge of a <clears throat> tea towel sample. And everyone was talking about it, said, have you seen that? Have you seen that miniature stitch? Can you believe it's stitch? Isn't it funny? We never knew Karen was that funny. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was the start of it, really. And um, I did everything. I even did a, a sort of an animation. I went to classes separately to do an animation about the hoover. I think it was the washing machine, maybe. A washing machine, and it was taking in all the things, not your washing, but but a vacuum cleaner and a broom and, and all this other stuff that you would use in your domestic day. So there's a bit of humour in there, too. It was fantastic, really really successful piece and I showed it at New Designers and from that I was invited to do the graduate showcase which was four different exhibitions at the time and then the next year I was invited back for New Designers one year on and showed new work which was about also about sort of the domestic but more about gender issues and things about advertising as well and how women were portrayed so I did that and it won it won the one year on award and I was, can't tell you how shocked I was. It was amazing. So, and then I got the scholar, the Embroiders Guild scholar as well. So I did four more short shows again. So I think I was very lucky because it, it gave me lots of confidence and, and then I just moved forward with what I was doing, but not remaining static because the work has changed over the years. I, I see some parallels between what you said about the miniatures and how you took your miniatures to a show and then someone, you know, long story short, you ended up with an agent who was showing your work around the world. And and knowing the trajectory that you had from the applied arts degree, you got a first, you went to new designers, you went back to new designers. And, and shortly thereafter, you also got another agent, didn't you? Because it feels to me like you've been in such good sync with the way things are meant to be. The work that you've done, the time that it's happened and everything else has kind of plopped into place. I don't know. I, it's rare yeah. to see someone who's obviously been doing the right thing. The amazing thing is... I don't make the work for anyone else. You know, I'm not making work thinking, oh, these people are going to be seeing it. There's going to be viewers. It's going to be an exhibition. I mean, the plan is for the work to go to an exhibition, but it's not for me. I, I don't think about what are people going to think about this work. I just try to make a really sensitive and authentic piece. And that's as far as it goes. And it actually quite, it was a bit of a shock, not Quite early on, I was invited to do um, being part of a group show in um, Salt's Mill. I, the deadline wasn't massive, so I had to think of the work, do the research, and make the piece. And uh, it was quite, quite a lot, a huge amount of work, in fact. 
It was based on the 1891 census of people who were living and working in the textile industry in Salt's Mill, in Saltaire, Salt's Mill. And I was looking at the women in this 1891 census. And to cut a long story short, I had the names of the women and what they did and where they lived and all this. I didn't give it any thought other than what I wanted to say. And I was very pleased with the work. And then I went up for the opening and all these people came in and they were looking and they were pointing and they were saying, that's my auntie. That's my grandma. This is where we live. And some of them were saying, oh, I can't believe this. And they started crying because it, it was connected them to the work and their families. And I, I actually, I feel bad now that I actually didn't connect the fact that there would be people still living in that area whose families were working in the mill. So you, I think I learned something from that, that you really have to connect to what's going on outside of your knitting space or your sewing space or your studio or what wherever you are and what you're making. There's more to it than just the making. It was, it was interesting experience. It's so fascinating because you are documenting, I mean, especially there, you know, like sort of women's history and the things that women did in the not too distant past, really. There isn't that so so much anymore. I mean, there's starting to be more documentation of women's lives over time. But I mean, in a way, I'm sure those people, although they were emotional about it, they must have been deep down thrilled to bits to have their relatives, their sort of family included and remembered. Yes, yes, I know. I think you're absolutely right. I was looking a lot about women, uh, women's issues and women's histories. And and that became very important because, as you say, um, they're the hidden histories or the forgotten histories. So when you can go back and look at the 1891 census, which not many people are going to do unless they're a historian or, or doing their family tree. So I felt like I'm going into someone else's private life, really. I think it's it's incredible and it was incredible for me. And I found it really emotional that there was this real connection to the work. I mean, it has happened to quite a few pieces of my work that um, have created incredible, incredible uh, responses where at my last major show at the Knitting and Stitching Show, as it happens, and... It was my second installation. The first installation was about women and dieting and um, body image. And and it was a, a full kitchen. I think Jamie would have that seen that. That was the that. first time I saw yeah. it, the gilt biscuits. Oh, yes, the, the hand-stitched biscuits. That's right. Yeah, they travelled They traveled through Europe, those biscuits, actually. Did they? I, I read about those last night. They're amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I had that idea. And um, when they came back from Europe, because they travelled to a few different places, they had done this incredible thing because I think they, you know, they're quite fragile. And I should have thought about it. I think they put some felt underneath just to protect them so they didn't break. And I thought, why didn't I do that? What a clever idea. Anyway, I don't know what state they're in now, but they're still wrapped up somewhere. Can um, you tell us about those just while we're... Because if the ever there was a nonchalant, it a- it's like, oh, yeah, so I cross-stitched these biscuits. That, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I had this idea. My daughter was still at uh, university, my older daughter, and um, she was doing all this amazing creative stuff. And they had a laser cutter there. And I said, oh, I have this idea. I said, do you think I can come and use the facilities? You could go as an outsider, and obviously I had to pay for it. But I went in and with this idea of 
of putting holes into the biscuits so that I could sew into them. And I did some experiments. Some of them got burnt because I think the laser super cooked them. But eventually it did work. And um, yeah, I hand, they, you got the holes in the biscuit and I hand stitched them with threads. And each one had a letter on it. So, and the letters were G-U-I-L-T. So guilt. So you're looking down at this platter, which I also had um, laser cut. And it had all the words, ghastly words that people use to, to say um, someone's overweight, like fat, chubby, uh, chonky, um, you know, really flabby, really horrible words. And they sat on that. And you do feel guilty how well I do. I have done if I have all the, more than a couple of biscuits, which can happen. And you you think, am I going to pick that up and eat it? But of course, you, when you look down, it says guilt. And on top of that, you don't really want to eat something which has got threads running through it. Yeah, so that was that was how I, I made those. I believe you did it by laser. I thought I like when I was, I thought you you know very carefully prodded him with a needle. No, this lady's got a laser. Watch <laughs> 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 out! Extraordinary. It actually makes perfect sense. Sometimes when you are suffering from a sort of a deep mental health issue, or you know, sort of deep grief, or in this case, eating disorders, which are so deeply deeply built in aren't they sort of so embedded and stuck in it's too painful to talk about it sometimes the words aren't there and you can't communicate how you feel uh, and and the depth of the the feelings which can be so enormous and so dark and nasty but if you see them in front of you if somebody has translated those awful dark snakes and spiders into art and suddenly you can see a path or you could it just it's one of those things where you think crikey that is the power of art isn't it that's the power of another way of communicating and reaching us on a sort of soul level yes that sounds a bit deep but it is that isn't it those young women looked at your work and thought this is me this i understand and in in that they also saw a root out of the misery it's it's amazing it's absolutely fabulous Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I agree. I just, you just don't expect it. But um, at, in this second installation with the bed and the seriousness of the eating disorder, uh, when I was making, I was at the start of making a quilt for the bed and somebody contacted me, a mother, and um, it was incredible. I don't know how she connected me at a particular time in my life where things weren't going so great and a particular time in her life where things had gone terribly, terribly badly, because her daughter had had a really complex eating disorder, and she died. And I thought, for this woman to contact me to talk about it was such an honour, and just an incredible thing. And um, turns out that her beautiful, beautiful daughter was really creative, really creative and she was studying actually studying an art-based degree and um, she never got to finish it but she left behind all this wonderful work textile work and her mum actually came to my house and she brought she brought all these things that her daughter had made which were incredible and really inspiring obviously she's profoundly missed but I I said could I she was in the middle of designing a sort of a patchwork quilt and turns out to be the most complex thing I've ever seen. I mean, I'm not really a quilt maker. So I said, could I take her pattern, the idea, and use it in my quilt? And she said, yes. And then on top of that, with that big doll's house, I dedicated 
one room to her and it was the art room and I've shrunk down to miniature her artwork and her drawings and even on the walls, um, you know, because I made special wallpapers for each room. And in that particular room, it looks very strange. It's like little red dots with a sort of a, a squiggle coming out. But it was from work she made when she was in a hospital receiving treatment and she was stitching onto the bed sheet uh, in, in red and a little thread coming down from these red things, red dots. And what it was, it was every period that she had missed because when you're, you know, everything begins to shut down when you have an eating disorder. So I used that. I copied it and I used that as a wallpaper and I call it the menstruation paper. And her mum was incredible because I didn't, it was such a, such a difficult and sensitive thing that you're doing, but she was so open to it all. And she was so proud that I dedicated this room to her gorgeous daughter. And she actually came to the Knitting Stitching Show one day and helped me. I mean, and my goodness, Karen, how much you helped her. Well, I mean, to honour her daughter in that way and to to bring the work, you know, her daughter's work and push it out into the world with your work. I mean, they kept, it's, it's a wonderful tribute to her daughter. No mm. wonder she came and helped you. I mean, that's wonderful. Thank you. And, and again, you know, it's another sort of highlight to people who don't maybe don't know about eating disorders. Well, I suppose in one way, it's for people who are experiencing eating disorders and they obviously will read your work and understand it instantly. But for people who don't know about eating disorders... It opens their minds up, doesn't it? It's just such yeah. a function of art to teach us and open us and enlighten us. I think sometimes in the modern world, we forget that about art. We forget how much there is to learn from art. You know, people walk around art galleries, look at sort of old-fashioned art. I'm putting mm. my fingers up like sort of in quotations there, <laughs> sort of not learning very much about the symbolism and think, oh, yeah, that's a nice picture, you know. And whatever the medium we learn so much from it. I think that's just so profound that you reached so many people and and people with these terrible stories that have had the, the light blown into these stories to show them and to honour. Thank you. Yes, yeah. The thing that fascinates me, sorry, is um, it's so research-driven. So you put in the time doing the research and presumably there's a certain point in the research when you decide like an idea is happening because I'm guessing I mean there's an interesting overlay because you know you've done big installations of kitchens which are like big versions of doll's house kitchens you know that there, there are layers here where you can see the same themes coming out you know like your first piece of work looked like the kind of tea towels it, it reminded me of the pull down tea towels you find you know in utility spaces and stuff like that and then obviously the the design approach there's a direct connection to the visual aesthetic and those sorts of things but obviously as you move to a more research driven mode of work I guess I mean you go like say with the eating disorders is it you go right I'm a blank canvas I'm going to research as much as I can and then kernels start to grow as the research happens and then then the making process is so slow and deliberate. Presumably you form additional conclusions because you're processing the research through the making process, which would then further inform your work. Wow. You've hit the nail on the head, Jamie. <laughs> you really have. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. So true. I mean, yes, I, I do. That's what I do. I start with the research and, 
And as I'm researching, the ideas start coming. If I'm reading or in the past, I used to do um, questionnaires and and lots of technical research as well as autobiographies, people's stories and talking to people and or people contacting me. So, yeah, that's the first stage. And I could just be reading a book and then something pops out of that book and I know immediately that that's going to be an artwork. So I'll be writing, when I write up the notes, I can see that particular point and I do a, a tiny little drawing next to it, like one piece, I, I just drew some spectacles. I knew there were going to be spectacles in that particular piece or, yeah, it, all different things happen while while I'm reading. And as you say, when I'm making the work, I don't, at the end of the research, I'm not saying, right, that's research done. I'm now starting to make the work. I carry on with the research while I'm making. And while I'm making, I'm thinking and sewing and looking and I need a lot of mental space. So I need it to be fairly quiet because my brain can't tolerate too much noise. So there's all that thinking going on. And within that thinking, I'm not only thinking about future artworks or what could happen, but this particular work I'm on is developing and changing and adapting so I'm not saying I've read it this is the artwork I'm making and it's from A to Z is an A and then it might sort of veer off in a different direction and something that was may have been three artworks which I'm really excited about doing these three particular artworks are suddenly connected and become the one artwork Hey everybody, if you like the Lovecraft Show, take a moment and subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app. Join us on the Lovecraft Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and your favourite podcast app. Mm -hmm. Can't wait for you to join us for more Lovecraft's fun and chat. I understand that completely the way that you can have all these sort of separate concepts yes. and ideas and then suddenly there's a sort of an epiphany and they all come together and start to merge into each other and it's it's fantastic that sort of process. But and talking about Jewish things and, and all things Jewish, can you tell us about this very difficult work about the Holocaust that yeah. has been such an enormous project and such an emotional project to work on. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> I have to say, it has been, I mean, I thought the de eating disorders was very, very difficult. And I feel like if I hadn't done the eating disorders and gone through all that emotion with them, I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing now. It has been really difficult, the research. I've read books and books and books. I've spoken to people and even people have, have told me about things that her family, not family, friends. Um, oh, yeah, and family. And I didn't know their stories. And I've made artworks about their one person's mother's story and his grandmother's story. So, yeah, all these things are really difficult, really difficult. And uh, sometimes, especially recently, I've, I've actually woken up in the night and been tormented haven't been able to get back to sleep. It's like since 2019, I've been making this work. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so it, it, it has had its toll in a way, but I, I don't want to leave it. And it's changing. And I'm still doing work about the Holocaust. 
Um, in fact, I'm doing a piece now, another one, which I'm is going to take over a year to stitch. I've been already been stitching for quite a while. And what I did is I bought my favourite thing <laughs> of doing on on these auction sites. I bought a really, I think it's a 1930s typewriter, you know, one of those black ones, and it's really old looking. And uh, and 1930s is a good point because of when Hitler came to power and all this anti-Semitism against Jewish people, and which culminated in the madness of the Holocaust, um, really. Anyway, so I'm working on that. And the hand stitching is going to be like this very, very long letter, which is coming out from the roll of the, I think you call it the roll. I don't know what it is. Mm. Yeah, the Um, roller. Yeah, that comes out of the, so it's going to just be running a long way and that will come out and be on a table. So all these things I'm stitching are actually 2022. I'm stitching all the anti-Semitic incidents which are happening worldwide today. And then on the keyboard, some of them have got little rings around them, the, the little keys. So each one of those I've hand stitched. I haven't stuck them on yet because I need to clean the typewriter up. So they've got all these horrible anti-Semitic slurs hand stitched and they will be their little circles and they will go onto the keys. And then the third part of it, this is crazy, the whole thing is made up of three sections, is the actual ribbon that you have on the old typewriters. I've taken out the old ribbon and that will be replaced by my hand-stitched text. So these things are contemporary on the keys. The things on the ribbon are the things that could easily have been typed onto this German typewriter in the 1930s, negative things about Jews. And the connection is from what's going on now and what's going on there, uh, plus all this stuff about contemporary anti-Semitism. It's going to be a really interesting piece of work. So, um, yeah, but not easy. Very, very difficult. And the fact that it's still happening today and we still need to talk about it today, which I think is where, again, this is another scenario, I think, where for some people it will make more sense to them when they see it in a visual way like this. Rather than reading, they might not take the time to read, they might not be able to read it, but then they'll see this work and then it will, you know, the power of stitching and creativity and art will connect them up to the the abhorrence if you like and the disbelief that it could have happened and it's still happening the curious thing to me is that so uh, there was an interview i watched with you and you talked about the work that you've done with eating disorders and how it sort of came to a natural end and you've said that previously about other things like with the miniatures you know it kind of came to a natural end Mm. yeah with this you're in the depths of this and you can't say that you finished this by any long stretch it's been going on since 2019 and you've done lots of different pieces of work so you can't see the magnum of the opus. Is that the right way of putting it or whatever? Do you know <laughs> what I mean? I think it's interesting that obviously you're still in a position of processing, but you've gone from documenting the past. Cause like the first piece was um, the map that you made, wasn't it? That looked at the number of Jews in certain countries in within the Middle East and then the number of Jews now and kind of a time documenting. It's kind of like an infographic. A lot of your works are kind of like infographics, aren't they? Made on a, very small scale and I guess uh, what was it called the worst case scenario you know that's a doll's house that you've made that is effectively a time capsule of a period of time because I'm right in thinking it was like a a Jewish house before 
Was it before stuff got really bad, kind of? Yes, yeah, in, in Berlin. But all in that particular piece, worst case scenario, is that the clues are there. The clues are there. And that's why the suitcase is at the door, just in case they have to leave in a hurry. Because all of those books were books that were burnt in Germany. They had this big, um, in the 1930s, they called it the book burning, and they took all the books, the students, and I think it was in about 33 university towns, they took out all the books that were written by Jewish people, but not just Jewish people. I think there was Hemingway, um, I think Freud, but he was Jewish, and uh, uh, quite a few different authors that they thought were poison, and they were going to get rid of them, but not really realising that they are burning culture and things that everyone can learn from. So that was absolutely terrifying. So all those books that were burnt are on those bookshelves. So they're there. And um, there's all these things like you see the dog, the cat, the bird in the cage, all of those things were banned. Yeah, so I'm just actually looking at photos of worst case scenario. And I think if you're listening please, please, please go onto Carol's website and have a look at the pictures of Worst Case Scenario because it is, it's a miniature doll's house. Looking at, I mean, I'm looking at the tiny, tiny books, Karen. I mean, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible, the detail. Like you say, it's so, all of these things are meaningful. Not one millimetre of this doll's house doesn't have something to say. I think that's a fascinating thing that goes back to the point I was making before about the research uh, influencing the work and then the work influencing the work because there's a piece of yours, uh, I'm just trying to remember what it's called, uh, A Taste of Things to Come. Ah, yes. And that's a piece which at first glance is a very simple layout of a tray and stuff like that, but literally every single element of that is really considered and you know obviously there's the pieces you've made but it's a curation of all of the elements because it's a well can you speak about it is it yes um interesting piece I was reading a book by someone called Bella from at the time she was writing at the time and I'm always very very curious about reading things from a particular period so if it's in the 1930s and not 2021, because you have the absolute, you know, this is the history happening now, rather than someone's memories can be become a bit distorted later on. So I really do like to go back to that primary research. And um, I was reading the book. And then within it, she talks about being at this very, very nice select cafe restaurant in, in uh, Berlin, and they were popping champagne and everything. And she was with all these high uh, officials, ambassadors at the time at one table. And this young couple come in and they sit down at the table and they are brought some tea and with it a note saying, we do not serve Jews. And the woman, Bella Fromm, who wrote the, the diary, she turned around and saw how they were in absolute shock, this young couple. Uh, it's 1935, and she read read what it said on this paper, and she said, right, come on. They were getting up. She says, we're coming with you. So they left everything at their table, their champagne and their food. They left, and this couple left. But it had an absolute profound effect on me 
that shock of this couple. So I wanted to make the story about them. And instead of using a note, I hand-stitched in Hebraic letters, we do not serve Jews. And I put that at the bottom of this exquisite porcelain cup and saucer. And they, I saw them as the dregs. They were treating Jewish people as the dregs of society and felt they could do what they liked with them. So in there, it says in these like tea leaves, and they have to leave as well. We do not serve juice. And then it's got the little sugar cube and and matchbox. All, these, all of these things were handmade and hand-stitched. And, of course, the, um, the serviette, which in the same same way as the, the box room, I wrote down every single thing that Jewish people couldn't do or forbidden from or couldn't work or, or their pensions were reduced or taken away. All these things that happened at that time. Yeah, that piece was really, really interesting, right down to the, the, the spoon, which was made in Berlin, and the and the and even the ashtray came from uh, Germany, and, and on it, it's like a souvenir ashtray, but that's where the Nazis, this castle, that's where the Nazis took all the, uh, all the treasures, all the artworks that belonged to Jewish people, they just took from them, stole from them, and they hid it, at that. So there are all these little connections in that piece, and I really like it. It's so fascinating, the power that your work has. And I think in the, in the minutiae, in the, the tiniest, tiniest details of all of the, you know, like every single layer of what you're making has meaning, you know, from the, the vintage and the locations of the things that you're buying to include in the works and the detail is extraordinary. And I think what I hadn't appreciated and it has blown me away completely is that it's not just the actual miniature, you know, the actual size of the pieces that you're making that's in miniature, but it is the detail that's in miniature. It's the level of attention to detail that's minute that makes it even more powerful and even more awesome. I really, really encourage everybody to go and look at Karen's work and really look deeply and understand. You have to. You can't. You can't. You can't glance at it. If you glance, I mean, you can glance at it and go, "She's cross stitched on a biscuit," <laughs> but you are slightly missing <laughs> some of the arguments here. The point. But I think having listened to you talk about it. And having, like, looking at worst case scenario, for example, and understanding that, you know, the forbidden things and the, the detail of what you've talked about, this gives it such an extra dimension to me now. I mean, I was already blown away looking at it, but now I just look at it with fresh eyes. And I think I'm really hoping that people are going to listen to this and be as, as, as moved as I am. I'm sure they will be. Oh, it's quite extraordinary. I've loved oh, talking to you, you, Karen. I've thank absolutely loved it. I, think I knew I was going to love it, but I've loved it much more than I thought I was going to love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing here a little thank bit like, I told you so. I told you Karen was a bit brilliant, really. <laughs> the thing that I love you did, is... You did tell us from the beginning, you did. <laughs> like, there's so much that I love about your work, but I think the thing that I really love is it's, it's the documentary. It's the, the connection. Because you're using tools that are familiar, embroidery, dolls houses these are things that promote like nostalgic senses in us anyway and then you're applying those with a research-based methodology to create documentary and infographics and stuff so it's kind of like 
we can watch on the telly documentaries about these things, but you're presenting it in a different medium, a medium that we're familiar with. And as I know, you know, we know with needlework, if you politicise needlework, you get the contrast between the domestic simplicity people are used to and the content that people are receiving. And you've taken that to the nth degree because of applying it to, you know, doll's houses that everyone thinks are charming and cute and all of those sorts of things as well. I kind of hope that people can use it as an opportunity to think about how they might document things as well. I don't know, it just redefines things. It makes it so much more interesting. As as you've spoken, the, the effects that it's had on people, they've been able to process their circumstances because you presented the information in a symbolic manner, which means that then they can interpret it. You're not narrating it, you're presenting it and allowing people to narrate it themselves and to build their own connections with it. Yet... Is underpinned by solid research in a way that other artwork might not be. Yeah, I think um, I think the research is absolutely essential. Uh, yeah, before I can make anything, the research has to be there because I want it to be authentic. I want want you to be able to look at it and know it's the truth. But as you say, you're using textiles, you're using cloth, which everyone can relate to, and people can really connect to it. And it softens it softens the blow really because even for me when I'm stitching it sort of softens it even though it's ghastly to to stitch it's just that tactile nature of cloth and the routine and the rhythm of stitching and all of those things and the time it takes and the thought about it everything everything is connected and it can link the miniature draws people in and you have to get up quite close to the work to read read the text or look at or look at the motifs or whatever I've stitched. You're having to move right in close, and you're thinking, "Oh, I really like this piece. It's it's nostalgic, and I really want to enjoy it." But then, when you get close, you're not necessarily going to enjoy it. Which happened with the doll's house, where people came rushing in and laughing, saying, "Wow, wow, look at this! This is a doll's house!" And then. They got more and more quiet as they looked at it and saw there was much more to it than meets the eye, which happens with a lot of my pieces. Where can people find out? Obviously, we've talked about where you're going, and I think the answer is these. you're very much in the creative flow at the moment. I feel like you're right in the middle of this big river and these ideas are coming <laughs> thick and fast. The typewriter thing. But if people, I mean, if people want to keep up to speed with you, if people want to engage with you, where's the best place for people to do that? Well, really on my website is the, the best place or Instagram because um, that's what I put up. All my images go on Instagram, but the website is kept up to date and it and it gives all the publications that are out or going to come out and have the all the exhibitions that I'm in that they could go and visit. It's all up to date always and, and the images are, are up there and there's, there's a lot of um, text about about the work so if you want to find out more or if anyone's interested they can they can actually contact me through the website because um yeah there's a contact button and you can write and say what you want or if you're interested or you want to know more and presumably if people want to dip their toes into the miniature world Mm. it's never been easier to kind of like realize that ambition these days presumably what are their groups and sites that are aligned to that sort of thing well i mean the the best thing is to find out if there's a local doll's house um, exhibition. You know, you can just connect and see if there's things that you like or that you would like to make 
make. It's it's out there, and of course you've got the World Wide Web. You know, there's. Well, <laughs> and dare I say it, you have the Lovecraft's website because I, yes. as a knitter and a crocheter, there are patterns on Lovecraft's for miniatures that are knitted. Teeny, teeny, weeny, weeny, weeny little doll's house things, you know, little tiny crochet tablecloths and knitted tablecloths and amazing miniatures. There are patterns on the Lovecraft's website. If you're a knitter or a crocheter and you want a bit of this miniaturism, you can do it. There are patterns and we'll add something to the show notes so you can have a look where they are. If we've learned anything as well, if, if you start now, in about 15 years time, you'll be ready to really do some stuff. (laughs) Karen, it's been so lovely having you on and I'm really glad that we got to talk about this stuff. And, you know, it is like literally the tip of the iceberg. We could have gone on all day. But Thank you so much for for coming to tell us all about your work. And I know anybody that's listening, please, please, please go and have a really close-up look at Karen's incredible work. Mm. And, you know, get your needles out, get your threads out, get your needles and hooks and everything out and start making some miniatures that really mean something thank you thank you very much mary and thank you very much jamie for inviting me it has been an absolute pleasure and thank you to everyone who's listened listened or listening because it it really means a lot to me thank you so let's have a look at our book of the day cross stitch for the heart Tell us about this, Jamie, because you're the cross-stitch man. I am, yeah. And it's arguable that Emma Congdon, a.k.a. Stitch Rovi on Instagram, is the cross-stitch lady. She's definitely one of the UK's most popular designers, and with good reason, I think. Like, this is her third book, and if you want a bit of beautiful typography that's going to lift your heart and be an absolute pleasure to stitch, then this book is the one for you. I mean, I I love the designs. These are sort of statements of, of beautiful words that you would hang anywhere in your house or it'd be the sort of thing that you'd stitch for somebody that they would just absolutely love and I have to say and I mean this is new to me Jamie but the colour choices she's made it's so tonal and beautiful that I love the way she's put the colours together for these designs. She's got such a strong sense of using typography and stuff like that that it's like you're going to end up with a beautiful thing but also it's just going to be really interesting to stitch. Totally and actually this is so new to me just looking at it but there are so many beautiful things in amongst all these words that tie them together. So in the book there are 20 different designs and there's quite a range so I think if you're a competent stitcher there'll be enough designs in there to keep you interested you know there's plenty of back stitching to be done there's lots of little bits and pieces to add but also if you're quite new to it I don't think you'll feel too overwhelmed by the designs because you can break them down into their smaller pieces and as you would expect from all good cross stitch books there's a bit of instruction at the start there's some technique pages just at the back there. I love Emma work and I think that this is just a great book if you want something as a gift for someone who loves cross stitch or if you want to make some lovely things cross stitch. I absolutely concur so this one is published by David and Charles Um, you can get it in all the places that you buy your books and it is cross stitch for the heart 20 designs to love by Emma Congdon (laughs) 